All right, good singing this morning. Take your Bibles with me, Galatians chapter 4. I, I think I gave this heads up last week, but uh, if I didn't, I'm going to give one right now. This incarnation series is not going to be very Christmassy. I mean, it's Christmas because it's Jesus putting on flesh, but it's not angels and wise men and shepherds. It's not necessarily Luke 2. We'll get there Christmas morning. But it is this, this picture of, of what it means for Jesus to have put on flesh, what it means for us. And, and so the goal over these last week, this week, and next week with this incarnation series is not necessary for us to have like five steps to a better Christmas or four things that Jesus' life teaches us about. Like, like those are in the Bible somewhere probably, and that's fine. Uh, the goal this three weeks is that we would just have a greater, like, like greater picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. Like, he would be more beautiful, he'd be more glorious. We talked about that last week with Genesis 1 and John 1. Like, like the light, what we just sang about, the light has come into darkness. The, the creator of the universe, Genesis 1, has moved into the neighborhood, as some translations would put it, and lived with us. Like, how glorious and how beautiful and how, how great that is. And that's not for us to take home, here's five steps to a better Christmas from John 1, but it is a, we walk out of here, hopefully, with a greater love and appreciation for the one who put on flesh. Okay, so that's, that's the heartbeat of, this, of these three weeks, is that we would, we would leave here with understanding what Jesus has done in putting on flesh, what he's accomplished for us, and not necessarily have a checklist to do, but in fact, we just have greater love for him. Man, I just want more of him because of Christmas, because of him and the incarnation that he would put on flesh. Okay, so, so I said Galatians 4. If you're somewhat familiar with the book of Galatians, you know what, what verse we're going we're gonna to get to. But before we get to that verse, I feel like, studying out, okay, I thought where I was going to preach one through six, and it was going to be all neat and tidy, and, and then that broke when I studied out the text. Uh, it's real annoying when that happens. Anyway, uh, so I, we got to understand the context, because, man, it's really, it's real cool. It's real, I think it's real beautiful. So the context is this, Roman province, modern-day Turkey, uh, if you read in the beginning of Galatians, it says to the churches of Galatia, okay, so it's a region, it's not a specific city, it's a region, modern-day Turkey, multiple churches started by Paul, and he's writing this letter to them, okay, the churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles, okay, so think of Ephesians, like we had that whole two becoming one in the church and all those things, like same thing happening somewhat here in Galatians, and, and you see that in Galatians 3, other places throughout the book. Okay, uh, last thing that we need to, to be made aware of. The main thing that Paul's writing about in the book of Galatians is this Judaizers, which would say you, you get righteousness, you get declared righteous, salvation, however you want to word that, by keeping the law. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus keeping the law. So, so you need to do certain Jewish traditions and customs in order to be fully accepted by Jesus. So, so most false religions, if not all of them that use the Bible, would say the Bible plus something. Like Jesus, maybe they redefine who Jesus is, whatever, but it's Jesus plus something, right? Judaizers, no different here, right? Like Jesus sounds good, we like him, we like what he did, but you got to keep certain customs. You got to keep certain things of the law, okay? So that's what he's addressing. So, and, and we're not going to read the whole book of Galatians, don't worry. But in chapter one, verse six, Paul would say this, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Okay, notice, it is, it's Jesus, right? Like, the Judaizers taught some level of Jesus, and yet Paul doesn't say a variant. Like, he calls it a completely different gospel, right? Totally different. 2, verse 16, know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, which is what the Judaizers taught. 
but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. We skip a couple verses, 2 verse 21. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Okay, so, so Paul makes a really good argument in chapters 1 and 2 about why we don't, why don't, we don't need this, this Judaizer, uh, Jewish traditions, keeping the law, and all those things. Like, it's Christ and Christ alone. But then in chapter 3, the question of sorts gets asked, what do we do with the law of it? Like, like what do we do with it? Okay, so, so Paul, and we're not going to read all chapter 3, but Paul, in chapter 3, would say a couple things about the law. One, it shows us our sin. It shows us that we're broken. So the law's purpose wasn't necessarily for us to go keep it perfectly so that we could earn salvation. The law was given to us to show us that we're broken and we can't do any of it. Right? Like, like that's the one, one reason why we'd have the law. Second reason, and, and I don't know why this hasn't made sense to me sooner. Maybe different translation. I don't know. But, man, this, this verse really stuck out to me. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 24. The law has become our tutor. Uh, uh, that word there is teacher. Some translations use guardian or some word like that. But it's instructing a child. Right? So, so this, the law has instructed us, and, and the NASB says, to lead us to Christ. And other translations would say, until Christ has come. But there's this picture that the law shows us that we're broken and that, that we need somebody else's righteousness, but the law also should be pointing us and teaching us about the one who's coming. Or in our case, the one who has come. And so as he's saying, do we completely get rid of the law? He's saying, no, we don't get rid of the law. Because the law teaches us about this one who we call Jesus. Okay, that brings us to chapter 4. Everything I just said has some connotation with what we're going to dive into here in chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2, uh, we'll read those first, and, and, and we'll stop and talk about them. This is, this is a cultural reference. We'll explain it all. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Okay? Not hard to understand, but let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Here's... here's a mini empire, a little kingdom, however you want to word that, a family that's wealthy. They have servants, probably more like slaves, and, and they have wealth and an abundance. In, in the midst of this, there's a child, right? It says, there, here's this child in verse 1. He's the heir. He's the one who's going to inherit this little, little kingdom, the house, the land, the servants, the wealth, the, whatever you want to picture. Okay, what does he say in chapter 1, or verse 1, though? He says, he does not, this child who's going to inherit it all, does not differ at all from a slave. Why? Because, because he's a child. Like, like there's rules and there's these, these restrictions on him and he's young and there's punishment when he goes outside the lines and like all these things that would take place. The same thing that would happen with a slave. Okay, notice what he says at the end of verse 1. Although he's the owner of everything. Like one day he's going to inherit everything, but right now he's, he doesn't look like that. Verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers. These two words have this picture of a ho- someone who would lead your household. So a servant and slave who would be in charge of the household. Okay, so, so your child is underneath a slave who one day, when he becomes the one who inherits it all, is going to be above this slave. But for the moment, he's, he's put, placed under. Okay, at what time does this child go from under the rulers of the household to ruling the household? The text tells us. Verse 2, until the date set by the father. Okay, so, so the father, the leader, the ruler, however you want to kind of define his role, he says, here's the day, here's the time, here's the maturity level, here's the definition of what it looks like when he's going to take over and rule and reign this little empire that we have created. Okay, that's not, it's not crazy to us, right? 
Like, like for some of you like that are parents, or even you're not parents, but you just like to talk about having kids someday. Like you think my child's not getting a cell phone until he's 16. In a world that like you're born with a, with a cell phone in your hand. Like that's how the world seems to put it. But like we're going to wait until this certain age. Or, or you can't date till you're 22. Or you're going to get your first job and start paying rent to mom and dad when you're 14. Like whatever your rules are. Like, like you, but you set them apart, right? Like mom and dad, here's the parents. And we set some rule for you that when you get to this age, here's the expectation. Here's, here's what we're going to do, right? That's not, that's not foreign to us, okay? But notice chapter three. Here's this cultural picture analogy, verse one and two. Chapter 3, Paul's going to kind of pull us together. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage or held in slavery, placed into slavery under the elemental things of the world. Okay, so, so he's saying here's, here's children who are treated like slaves. Verse 3, though, he doesn't call us children. Like we were children, but he says we were held in, in slavery. We were held in bondage under what? Under the elemental things of the world. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this about why we think this, but just from the context. Chapter 3, chapters 1 through 3, talking about the law. Chapter 4, verse 4, uh, we're going to talk about the law a little bit even more. And so what we think is this elemental things of the world is referring to, to the law. The, the word elemental things, it's one word in the Greek. What it means is basic building blocks. Okay, so, so you were held in bondage or in slavery to the, to the basic level. So we think Old Testament law, what is Paul saying? He's saying that building blocks. Okay, we're going to come back to that later. Okay, but we were in bondage. We were in slavery just like this analogy he gives in verse 1 and 2. Verse 4. Everything hinges on verse 4. Like, we're going to keep going after verse 4, but everything hinges on this verse. But when the fullness of the time came. Okay, what, what does that mean? It, it goes back to verse 2, until the date set by the Father. Like, it's, it's exact phrasing. Like, like, the time of completion has come. The predetermined time is here. And so, so what would happen is the Father would would. Let the son take over the, the house. Or, or maybe the father passed away and he told the person, the slave, over the household, like, this is the day and the day has come. Like, that's the analogy. Okay, but here in verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, what happens? God, who, who's the father, and we talked about that last week and all those things, but here's the father, what does he do? He sends his son. So, so the predetermined time set by God uh, in, in his omniscience, in his, in his infinite wisdom, says, I'm going to send my son into the world at, at this moment. Like at this point in history, at this, at this point, here and, and, and now is the moment that Jesus would go for it. Now, you can study this out, and I'm not saying any of these things are invalid or wrong or bad. But there's a lot of reasons why people think this was the time. Right? And we're not going to go down those roads, but just to give you an example, Greek was a very common language. And so a lot of people could be reached at one time because the world was unified with one language. Okay? The, most of the known world. Okay, another reason is the Jews were scattered. And what did they do when they scattered? They set up synagogues all throughout the, the places where they were scattered to. So the Old Testament, we don't see the word synagogue. The New Testament, we see synagogue like it's a normal thing. And so what did they say? They said, man, we've got all these little outposts of places that can now teach the truth about God. Like, that's cool and that's great. But really, what this context of this is saying what? That the Father predetermined a time, according to his wisdom, that this would take place. And, and verse 4 is, is saying, the Father, our Heavenly Father, predetermined time, the time came, and he sends forth his son. Right? Just what we celebrate here at Christmas. What does he say about his son? Notice these two phrases in verse 4. Born of a woman. We talked about this last week, that the word became flesh. But born of a woman means what? It means he entered the world just like every other human. 100% God, 100% man, he enters the world as, as, as human. 
He doesn't enter the world as a light. He doesn't enter the world as some weird force. He's not Star Wars. Not these other, like, like he enters the world as man, and he enters the world just as every other man entered into the world. And then that next phrase hopefully sounds a little familiar from Matthew. Born under the law. Like, like he's born and he's under the law. And, and what does he do, Matthew 5? He perfectly fulfills everything in the law. Going, even going back to Galatians 3, that, that this tutor of the law might teach us about the one who's coming. Like, he doesn't break the law. He doesn't create his own law. He doesn't destroy the law. He perfectly fulfills it. Like, all of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Like, he's born under it. He's the one that, that keeps the law when we couldn't. So the law proves that we're broken. It proves that we're sinners. proves that we need somebody else's righteousness. And Jesus comes, and he's born of a woman. He's born under the law. And what does that show? It shows that he kept the righteousness. He kept it perfectly. He then, in verse 5, so that he might redeem. That word has this idea of cost or purchasing. Like what We know the context with his blood. Those who were under the law. Like so, so God, at verse 4, would say, I'm going to send my son into the world. And he's going to be born of a woman. He's going to be man. And he's going to be under the law. And he's going to live a perfect life. Why? So that in verse 5, he might buy those who are under the law. Like go back to verse 3. We were held in bondage or slavery. Okay, so, so the picture is, here's, here's slaves, and God says, I want this one, and he pays the price of his son putting on flesh and being under the law and dying for us so that he might purchase us. But what's, what's mind-blowing and should, should cause a greater love for God and a more amazing love and more glorious view of our God is the end there. They might redeem those who are under the law, these, these ones that in verse 3 that are called slaves or in bondage. The end of verse 5, that we might receive not a better house to be a slave in. It's not buying one slave to make him a slave for somebody else. No, 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 no. Verse 5 says that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Like, what did, Jesus, what did God accomplish when Jesus put on flesh and God sent his son at just the right time into the world? He, he took those who were slaves to something and he buys them out of that and he makes them his own children. Like, like there's nothing here that, that makes this passage. Like, the law points to the fact that we're sinners and we're broken. Uh, the fact that we're called slaves and we're in bondage. Like, there's nothing here that makes us sound beautiful. Makes us sound beautiful. There's nothing here that's like, man, it makes perfect sense for God to send his son to die for me. It makes perfect sense. Like, none of that's here. It's all the fact that, that God is gracious and loving and kind, and you say, I'm going to send my son at just the right time to redeem. So that, so that not you're my slave, that you're my child. Into verse 7, that you're an heir. We'll talk about that in just a second. Verse 6, though. We get to cry to the, to the creator God of the universe, which we talked about last week, Genesis 1. We get to cry to him, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba, you can do your own study on this. It's not a Greek word. It's, it's a word that they would have used in their Hebrew culture, most likely. Maybe Middle Eastern type thing, more than just Jewish culture. But it's, but it's not a Greek word. Okay? Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of ideas about Abba Father. And, and in my thing in Galatians 4, and four, verse 4, and God sends his son at just the right time, and we, all that takes place, man, we get to call him, call him Abba Father. So many people take that word Abba, and they think it means daddy in our English language. And, and man, what a neat and tidy message that is. Like God sends his son, and we now get to come to, to the creator God of this universe, and we call him daddy, and there's this intimate love, and, and man, that was cool. But then I studied the word Abba more, and, and I don't think it means what we would say daddy. 
it, it has an intimate relationship and that you would only use it to your father. It's, it's a title, it's a word. You don't use it to someone else's father. But, but there's two instances when, when, we, when you would use the word according to the culture and history from my understanding. You use it in prayer, and we'll talk about that in a second. And you use it when your personal father gives you a command. Your response is, yes, Abba. And so the picture is, it's my father, and I have a relationship with him. But there's also this understanding that I'm submitting myself to you, and there's obedience. And so when you pray, Jesus would pray in the garden, and I forget which of the Gospels, but his prayer starts, Abba, Father. Like, that prayer would have been a prayer that many would have prayed in that day, where it starts, Abba. But the understanding is, yes, there's a relationship here between me and, this, and, and my father, but there's this understanding that Jesus in that prayer says, it's not my will, but it's your will be done. Like, there's this submissiveness, and I'm placing myself under you and your rule and your reign. And again, we look at this text, and it sounds real nice and neat to be able to say, he redeems us out of slavery and bondage to be his sons, and now we have a personal relationship with, and that should blow our minds, but there's still the question that needs to be answered. Why the obedience side? Like, it seems to be so much easier if Paul would have just left it with a word that was more like daddy, and less like, yes, I'm going to submit to you, my father. So now we've got to go down that road, and let's go see what we find. Verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature, uh, which by nature are no gods. Okay, let's not get confused. Verse 3, he's going to seemingly talk about the law. Verse 8, he seem, sounds like he's talking about false gods, right? So, so context seems to change a little bit. Think about the church he's writing to. Churches, Jews and Gentiles. There were some that were under the law. Now they're Gentiles who had nothing to do with the law. She seems to be writing to both groups here in the same context, okay? Let's not get too confused. Verse 9, though. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, the fact that you have a relationship with him, right? We can call him Abba, Father. We, we can call the creator of this, this universe, the, the God of this universe. We can call him Father. There's a relationship there. He says, now that you have this relationship, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Like, like he uses that word, one Greek word, our English text too, elemental things, elemental principles, elemental however, whatever noun your, your translation may use. He uses it in verse 3 to talk about the law. Now he's using it in verse 9 to seemingly talk about false gods. And, and it, again, it's this basic building blocks. And so, so what is Paul saying? I just... My study, my perspective, I think what Paul's saying is that, that we have placed ourselves under some sort of checklist and some sort of rules. Like God has bought us out of a religion where it's just mark the box, where we're going to talk about this more in just a second, but this idea in the Old Testament where it's like everything was spelled out for you, hundreds and hundreds of commands. Like you knew exactly what you're supposed to do with your time and your money, what you're supposed to say, not say, how you're supposed to, like everything's spelled out for you. New Testament, not so much. You think of false religions. How do they live their lives? They, they live their lives by saying, here's all the things that you have to check in order to be approved by this false God that we're going to worship. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, God has made you a son. You're not a slave. There's a different relationship here. It's not go check the box in this religion. Stop checking the box, I think is what Paul's saying. These elemental things. So we're going to talk about what this means. Though. Okay, I find it interesting. This is a little side note. 
I'm not going to try and spend too much time on that. I think it's interesting that he uses the same elemental things for under the law and for those who seem to be worshiping false gods. And my thought is, I wonder, I mean, he calls out the Judaizers many times, but I wonder if this is saying to you Judaizers, you've taken the law and you turn it into a false god. Like you've taken the law and, and its role was not meant to be worshipped and it wasn't meant to be these things and you've taken that and now you've made it some sort of false religion. I don't know, just my thought. Okay, so, so what do we do with all this, right? So what do we do with, with all these things? Well, well the, with the Father, our Father, the God of this universe, at just the right time, sends His Son into the world who puts on flesh, born on the law, perfectly lives so that we might be redeemed and called as sons. Right, like praise God, amen to that. And yet there's still this idea in verses 1 and 2 that, that we would inherit more. Right, like there's, there's still this idea that there's, there's something else. Like we were slaves, now we're sons. Uh, sons are like, what do we do? We, we don't check the box, as it were. We don't go back to the elemental things. So what are we supposed to do with this fact that we've been redeemed, that Jesus has set us free from bondage and slavery? What do we do? Well, we've got to skip over uh, a couple verses. Look in chapter 5 of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom. Right? Sounds like just the exact opposite of, of how Galatians 4 starts. You're in bondage. 5.13, you've been called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, let's just pause right there. there. There's a whole culture that's been around for a long time. I don't think it's new in 2022. That says, hey, I'm a believer. God has set me free. And then they pretty much say, without saying, I can live however I want. Right? Like, like not what he's saying. Right? Like you go back to, to uh, 4 verse 6. We say Abba, Father. That word Abba is, is we're going to submit to you. So what does that mean? It means in verse 9, I'm not going back to how I used to live. I'm not going to live like somebody who doesn't know him. I'm not living like someone. Like if I'm going to call him Abba, that means I'm going to obey him. That means I'm going to look like him. That means I'm going to serve him. It means I'm going to put myself under him. And so we call him Abba today. We don't call him Master. Like he is our father. And yet at the same time, we would obey him. So he's saying in 5.13, we're not going to use this freedom that Jesus gives to us because he put on flesh and died for us. We're not going to use this freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. So, so we think of the Ten Commandments. Like it's not that we just throw away the Ten Commandments and break all of them. We don't get to go murder somebody. We don't get to go steal things. Like, like, that's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus says in Matthew 5, sitting around the mount. Okay, so what are we supposed to do, though? If, if we're not in bondage, if we're not under the law, like, what is the role? What are we supposed to do with this freedom that Jesus has bought for us? Look at the end of verse 13. But through love, serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting? The law is what? Our tutor, back in Galatians 3, that would teach us what? Would lead us to Christ. Would help us understand who he is. And so what does Paul say? He says we're not slaves to the law anymore, but he goes back to the law in verse 14 and says, here's, here's what the law was trying to get us at. That we would love. Like the, What the goal is now is now that we're free is that we serve one another, that we love one another. It's not just that we check a box anymore. It's not just that I went to synagogue or I went to church or I gave this or I did that. Like, it's not that. It's, it's something far greater than that. Which takes us back to these elemental things. I'm stealing this analogy from a pastor in South Carolina. His name's Mark Minnick. Totally not, I don't remember how he said it, so it's not verbatim or anywhere close. But here's the, here's the idea. Imagine going to your friend's house. We'll just pick an age. He's 30. He really likes his bicycle really good at it, spent thousands of dollars on it, 
has all the extra gear, whatever that looks like. In my mind, like a horn, but there's probably fancier stuff than that. Um, right? But, but man, he, spends, he, he like, likes to ride it. He rides miles every day. He invites people over every Saturday morning to watch him ride his bicycle. Like, like this is pride and joy. And, and after a few months, one of the friends finally gets the nerve and says, dude, take the training wheels off. Like, like stop. Like, you're 30 years old. Okay? Here's what Paul's saying. You have submitted yourself to the elemental things, the ABCs of, of, of this, as it were. And we get so proud, and we get so, we, we get so like the Pharisees, right? We're not far removed from Sermon on the Mount. We get so proud over the fact that we fasted, and that we prayed, and that we gave. And Jesus is like, that's the elemental things. That's the most basic thing you could be doing. Paul's saying because Christ put on flesh, because he lived a perfect life, because, because he died in our place and redeemed us, like, like, shouldn't we desire something more than this? Like, like you're rejoicing over, over riding a bike with training wheels at the age of 30. Maybe we can say it this way. In the Old Testament, here's checking the box. You tithed, and it was 10%. And, and not only did you tithe that 10%, but there was another thing that you tithed 10% on, and then there was another one that you tithed 10% on, but that 10% was spread out over three years. Right? So, so what did you do with your money? You knew exactly what you did with your money because 23% of it was going to somehow the temple and some sort of worship and all these, like, like you knew exactly. Flip to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? It says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. The New Testament says, give generously. Give hilariously. And so we go from, here's check the box and 23% to here's the New Testament that says, give a lot and be generous in your giving. And so here's the, the hard part is we want to say, how generous is generous enough? We don't ever get that answer, right? Same thing here, I think, in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Right? Like, what do we do with this new freedom? Is we, through love, serve one another. What do we do with it? Verse 14, we love our neighbor as ourselves. Like, how do you quantify love? How do you say, I've loved enough? How do you say, like, oh, I, I gave 50% of my love this week, so therefore, like, no, we can't say that. And I feel like what Paul's saying is because Jesus is put on flesh, because you have a relationship with the creator God of this universe, you are called to so much more than just elemental, basic things of of check the box. And yet we get so happy that we check the box. We get so happy that, man, look what I've done. And we turn into the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. And we just look what I've done and look what I've done and for the praise of men and for this and for that. And I think what Paul's saying here is, is, no, no, no. God put on flesh. We have a relationship with him. We are sons. We are no longer slaves. He is calling us to do so much more. So what do we do with the law? Man, we want to know the law because it teaches us about Jesus. And we want to look like him. So we want to know it, not necessarily so we can check the box. We want to know it so we can be more like him, so we can look more like him, so we can do things like he would do things. Like we want more of him, not just check the box. And so what do we do with all this incarnation? What do we do with with all of this? Well, it all goes back to Galatians 4.4. Right at just the right time, God sent his son to be to put on flesh, born of a woman, to, to perfectly fulfill all of the law. And so why does he do that? So that we might be sons. And because we are sons, he's calling us to live a completely different life than when we were slaves in bondage. And so what do we want to do with this message? Again, it's not five steps to, to a better Christian life, but it is hopefully that, that Galatians 4, 1 through 6 is this, God, what an amazing thing you have done that I can call you Abba, that I can call you Father, that I have a relationship with you. But then hopefully the remainder of this is that, hey, I'm going to live differently. I'm going I'm to, the building blocks of, of the Old Testament law are a great starting spot, but I want to go much further than that. 
I don't, I don't want to limit my, my life for Jesus. I don't want to limit how I give or how I love or, or what I do for others. I don't want to limit these things to just a certain check the box. Like, I want to go crazy for this. I want to go crazy for God, if I can say that reverently. Like, I want to go all out for him. Why? Because he sent his son to die for me. He's the one that put on flesh. He's the one that accomplished all of these things. And, and our response to that so often is some sort of religious response of let me just check the box for Jesus. Like somehow he's appeased with the fact that I read my Bible four times this week. Like he's calling us to live so much more. Why? Because he gave us so much. Right? Verse 4. Like it all engines around verse 4. The fact that he gave his son means all of this should be happening in our lives. So, uh, encouragement this morning is that we return our eyes to the God who sends forth his son. Encouragement this morning is, is he, uh, we have been redeemed by the creator God of this universe and we get to call him Abba Father. And, and so what do we do with that? Right? Hopefully that leads us to live a life that looks a lot more like Jesus and a lot less like the elemental things of this world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you obeyed the will of the Father, that you perfectly obeyed, that you are not only the perfect sacrifice, but you are the perfect example. When we desire to know how to live for, for our Heavenly Father, we can look at you. We can look at the Gospels. We can find you in the Old Testament law. We can, we can know what this life is supposed to look like. God, we thank you that you would call us your children. We thank you that, that at just the right time, you send forth Jesus to put on flesh so that he might die and buy us out of slavery. That he might purchase us so that we would be your sons and your daughters. God, I pray that that truth, the truth of being your children, would not be taken lightly. God, help us to to grasp that. Help us to realize that. Help that to become more glorious and more beautiful in our eyes. That the Genesis 1 God of this universe would purchase us to make us his own so that we can have a relationship, so that we can call you Father. God, as, as we would call you Father, help us to live that way. Help us to live as you are our Father. Help us not to live like the world. Help us not to live like how we used to live. God, help us to live differently because we know the creator God of the universe. God, I pray that you would help us, in Galatians 5, help us to love one another. As you have loved us, as you have shown us this love, especially here at Christmas time and sending your son, you've shown us your love. Help us to, to, to see the love. Help us to be overwhelmed by your love. And then that this love would just flow out of us. That we would love our neighbors. Uh, we love those in this church. We love those outside of this church. We would be people who are known uh, for their love. We thank you once again for this time. We thank you for this Christmas season and, and being able to tune our hearts back to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.